Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. The rise of the Nazis and their anti-Semitic agenda during the early 1930s was the beginning of the darkest era of modern Jewish history. For obvious reasons, we tend not to make jokes about it. And yet, at the time, some Jewish writers and artists, including photographers, did exactly that. I'm looking at a constellation of photographers, mostly German-Jewish, who used uh, black humor and bitter irony as a means of response to the virulent and state-sanctioned anti-Semitism with the emergence of the Third Reich. And I'm seeing these images playing out a means of comic relief, but also comic resistance against the Nazi regime at that time. This is Lewis Kaplan, a professor of visual studies and art history at the University of Toronto and a fellow at the Frankel Center for Advanced Jewish Studies at the University of Michigan. A key touchstone for his current project, titled Jewish Photographic Humor in Dark Times, Reflections on Visual First Responders to the Third Reich, is theorist and writer Hannah Arendt's study of what she called Jewish pariah humor. She talks about, in this essay, the links between the Jew as pariah and a sense of humor, the humor of the outsider, the humor of the outcast, and how the Jew who dwells in what we might call unheimlichkeit, which means not just the uncanny, the space of the uncanny, but also being dispossessed and disengaged from home or from homeland, that they develop a sense of humor from this social and political position. Another key concept for Kaplan is displacement, which Sigmund Freud discussed in his 1905 work, Jokes and Their Relationship to the Unconscious. When Freud talks about joke theory, he talks about two strategies or techniques that are employed in jokes, and those techniques are displacement and condensation. And there are also strategies that function in dreams as well. And the word in German for displacement is Feschibung. For example, displacement might be used in a joke that involves wordplay. For instance, someone says, have you taken a bath? And then the answer is, well, what? Is one missing? Right? So it's the displacement of the expected answer onto something that's surprising. And that's, of course, where the wit and the humor comes in. And of course, that joke is also kind of loaded because it plays with the stereotype of the quote unquote dirty Jew. So it could be used in a very anti-Semitic way. Displacement is also important because the photographers Kaplan writes about were themselves displaced. Let's not forget, they're all refugees. They're all displaced people. They're all subject to forced migration and on the run at this time. And they have to deal, therefore, with the question of displacement, not only in this manner of, of you could say, on the level of the humor, but also as an existential issue in their daily lives. In what follows, we'll take a close look at four Jewish photographers, Roman Vishniak, Erwin Blumenfeld, Greta Stern, and John Hartfield to explore how these artists use photographic wit as a type of comic relief and resistance to the rising threat to Jewish freedom and existence. Blumen in Gatlin, so fand 
Roman Vishniak is probably the most famous among the photographers in Kaplan's study. You may know Vishniak best for his photos of impoverished religious Jews in Eastern Europe just before the Holocaust. Kaplan focuses on photos Vishniak took a few years earlier, during the 1930s, when he was based in Berlin. In particular, Kaplan looks at a series of photos Vishniak took in the fall of 1933, where he poses his young daughter, Mara, near Nazi propaganda. In one photo, Mara is standing in front of a storefront advertising a device called a plastometer, a pseudoscientific instrument used to measure Aryan skulls to show that they were superior to Jewish skulls. And it creates this very dark contrast to put this Jewish girl, his daughter, in this alien space which is trying to prove Aryan racial superiority, right? So it's very intense. Above Mara, a sign reads Rassenflagge, which in German means care for your race. This, of course, becomes incredibly ironic, right? Because you've got a situation where it's almost as if what Vishniak does is that he inverts the sign. He takes the sign out of the hands of the oppressor and says, oh, yes, I am caring for my race by taking this photograph of my daughter, who I care about and who I am responsible for, and I'm going to do this in spite of this vicious anti-Semitic machine that is devised to, to discriminate and to persecute my people. In another photo featuring the same strategy of comic inversion, Vishniak poses Mara in front of an election poster showing Hitler and Paul von Hindenburg, the president of Germany who appointed Hitler chancellor in 1933. And the caption of that poster says, fight with us for peace and equal rights. Now, you can see already the debunking humor that he's setting up here by having his daughter, this Jewish girl, who eight years old or so, standing next to this propaganda poster and saying, oh, equal rights? Really? So it's, in a sense, showing us this position of the excluded and the outsider, right? So it fits back in again, as I've mentioned before, with the theory of the pariah. This is pariah humor. Vishniak could not publish these photos at the time for fear of Nazi reprisal. According to Kaplan's research, it wasn't until 1983 that Vishniak made the photos public, including some of them in his books about the vanished world of East European Jewry. Erwin Blumenfeld was born in Berlin and was involved in the avant-garde art scene there. During World War I, he served as an ambulance driver. He was, of course, as an ambulance driver, exposed to death on a daily basis. And I think that his turning to black humor was a kind of defense mechanism in relationship to that, in terms of being confronted with the horrors of death on a daily basis. After the war, Blumenfeld became involved with Dada, an artistic movement whose practitioners turned to nonsense and irrationality as a response to the horrors of World War I. In the early 1920s, Blumenfeld married a Dutch Jew and moved to Amsterdam, where he experimented with photomontage and darkroom techniques, and had more freedom than Vishniak, for example, to explore anti-fascism, satire, and self-irony in his work. 
So the one image that I find really fascinating and speaks volumes about Blumenfeld's sensibility and his understanding of self-ironic Jewish wit is his self-portrait with swastika that he did in Amsterdam, probably in the spring of 1933. In the image, Blumenfeld strikes the pose of a thinker, with his chin resting on his hand, contemplating the state the world has come to. And you find him with a swastika, which is the photo emulsion that he smeared on the the photograph in order to make the shape of the swastika. And it's almost as if he takes what we used to call the Mark of Cain, right, as the, the mark of the wandering Jew, and he puts it on his forehead as if he's now been stuck with the swastika. Blumenfeld also used darkroom chemicals to make it appear as though tears were running down his cheeks. And that, in a sense, stands in here for this idea of Blumenfeld assuming the subject position of the sad clown. And he inscribes this photograph, which was sent to his gallerist, Carol Van Leer, with the inscription, with heartfelt greetings from the Thought concentration camp. Kaplan interprets this image as an example of what the psychoanalyst Martin Grohan called the mask of masochism. And it's almost as if Grohan says that the persecuted Jew who makes himself the butt of the joke deflects his dangerous hostility away from the persecutors and onto himself. In other words, this type of humor is a defense mechanism. How can you hurt someone when you're laughing at them? That is at the root, you might say, of this self-ironic Jewish humor. And so that is, I would say, what Blumenfeld is doing here by putting this swastika on himself and imagining himself in this very scary, horrific, but but again, perversely funny way as thinking himself almost as a disappeared Jewish artist who has been sent to a concentration camp. And he's ironically commenting on what the world is becoming in 1933 with the opening of the Dachau concentration camp in Germany, which this image is seen as a response to. In another photo, Blumenfeld superimposed the face of Hitler over a human skull, producing images that he called Hitler the Grauenfresse, which can translate as the mug or face of terror. And so again, we have here on the one hand, political satire that tries to bring the the leader down low by ridicule, which is a classic strategy of all humor, not just Jewish humor, but at the same time doing it in a horrific way so that we start to think about the fear and the anxiety both being, as I say, released, but at the same time making us aware and to organize resistance against this new dictator on the scene who Dutch people and Dutch Jews were very concerned about. After the war, Blumenfeld emigrated to the United States, where he became a leading fashion photographer and one of the highest paid photographers in the world for outlets including Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. It's kind of an inversion as well. But here, I would say, from the horrors of of war to the beauties of the fashion world and style. (laughs) 
The photographer Greta Stern trained at the famous Bauhaus Art School in Germany, where she teamed up with another female student, Ellen Auerbach, to start a studio for advertising photography, which was pathbreaking for women at the time. And at that time, which of course is important for my argument, she's already using humor as a strategy in advertising, which really is something today that we take for granted. We, of course, right? In order to attract people's attention, you want to make jokes. But at that time, it was actually transgressive and very radical to use humor in commercial advertising, in advertising photography. Stern left Germany in 1933 for London, where she spent a few years before moving on to Buenos Aires in Argentina. While in London, she produced photos of artists, writers, and intellectuals who formed a community of exiles, including Bertolt Brecht, one of the most famous playwrights of the 20th century. One of Stern's photos featured Karl Korsch, a dissident Marxist philosopher who taught Brecht about Marxism. On the surface, the portrait looks very straightforward, not ironic or darkly comic, but upon closer inspection, you can see that there's a map behind Korsh, which is turned on its side. There's no way you can read the map and the portrait as they are meant to be seen. In other words, the portrait is in portrait mode, right? But the map is also set off in portrait mode. But in order to read it correctly, it has to be turned 90 degrees into landscape mode in order to see what it is and to read it properly. And so you've got this dissonance and disjunction and distanciation, which of course is a very important idea for Brecht and comedy. Brecht believed that humor, what he called the alienation effect, the effect, that humor depends on distance and humor depends on distanciation. So what's funny about this inverted map? Well, as Kaplan explains, the map is of German railway lines. And we might say to ourselves, why does someone in London need a German railway map behind them? Is that going to help them get around? Of course not. And that's, again, part of the displacement effect, the fascibulum, that's at the heart of the dark humor and the bitter irony in this image. And as for why the map is askew... You do it intentionally because you want to create these alienation effects in order to make us think twice about what I'm calling here this map awry and having a very wry sense of humor. John Hartfield is a pivotal figure in the history of photography and co-originator of the photo montage. Hartfield was a devoted communist and an anti-fascist, and he was also half-Jewish. His father was a Jew, his mother a Protestant. The Nazis, of course, considered Hartfield to be a degenerate Jewish artist. He went into exile very early because he was making these anti-Hitler and anti-Nazi photo montages that became very popular from 1930 in this magazine called the Arbeiter Illustrierte Zeitung, the Workers Illustrated Journal, which was a communist-funded, we could say, counter-propaganda sheet or broadside, which appeared weekly, and Hartfield was at the center. 
Hartfield's photo montages were so provocative that he rose to number five on the Gestapo's most wanted list. The story goes that he jumped out of his apartment window to escape the SS knocking at his door and fled on foot to Prague, where he continued producing photo montages and became more interested in his identity as a Jew. In one montage, he uses animals to satirize anti-Semitic Nazi propaganda. So you've got an image here, which is called in German, Gespräch im Berliner Zoo, which translates as the conversation in the Berlin Zoo. And it pictures a monkey who is sitting on a branch uh, talking with a stork, a marabou stork. And the monkey has just read the Stormer magazine, which we know is the most racist most anti-Semitic rag in all of Nazi Germany, which said horrible things every week about conspiracy theories, right? As we call them even today, about the Jews running the world, the Jews having blood libels. In the montage, Hartfield has the monkey say to the stork, this says that the Jews are animals and that they're going to put them in the zoo to join us. It's kind of like, what the Nazis want to do. They want to bring the Jews down, degenerate them, to say that they're subhuman and that they're only of animals, okay? But notice here how Hartfield is going to stage a reversal. So the marabou stork says, oh, no, 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 that's not what they should do. They need to put the Jews high above on the church steeples, and that would make a lot more sense. The monkey is confused, and so the stork explains. Well, that's because, don't you know, that the Jews are the best lightning conductors. The Jews are the best lightning rods, right? And, and then the joke stops there. Okay, so what's going on here? What is Hartfield doing? Hartfield is, in a sense, showing us through this photographic wit and photographic joke the very structure of anti-Semitism and how it works in order to scapegoat Jews and to blame Jews for everything. In other words, Hartfield exposes the illogic and absurdity of anti-Semitism. Hartfield's satire was similar to other jokes at the time that skewered the absurdity of Nazi anti-Semitic propaganda. At that time, people were saying things like, oh, the Jews and the bicyclists are to blame for everything. And then the response would be, well, why the bicyclists? And then the, the final verdict is, well, why the Jews? And this is exactly what Hartfield's doing in the visual medium instead of in the verbal medium. Today, when anti-Semitism is on the rise and Jews are under attack in Israel and around the world, Kaplan says Jewish humor can be as relevant today as a means of fighting back as it was during the rise of the Nazi regime during the early 1930s in Germany. Hannah Arendt said, if you're attacked as a Jew, you need to defend yourself as a Jew, not as a German, not as a Frenchman, not as an American, not as a Canadian, not as a human being, but rather to defend oneself as a Jew. And I think when we look at Jewish humor, even though it's not an explosive gun or a, or a weapon of war, it is still a weapon. Humor and wit could be used as a psychological and as a political weapon in the face of fascism. And 
it was done in the era of, of the Nazis, and I think it could be still used ongoing today, that it may be seen, therefore, as one means that Jews have in their arsenal to defend themselves against the forces of persecution and against the forces of discrimination. You've been listening to Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The podcast is produced by Conversa. The executive producer is Maya Barzilai. You can find and subscribe to Frankly Judaic anywhere you get podcasts. And if you like the show, please give it a five-star review. Thanks for listening.